Welcome to Success Unlimited with America's success thought leaders, Tim and Tom Simmons. This podcast is dedicated to exploring the journeys of thought leaders, business leaders, authors, speakers, podcasters, and various individuals' journeys to success and the challenges they had to overcome along the way. We are very thankful that you decided to listen in to our podcast. Like and subscribe to Success Unlimited's podcasts and socials to receive updates when new episodes are released. Do you have an idea of who you'd like to hear? Let us know by commenting on our socials or by emailing info at mymentorhq.co. Now, we hope you enjoy this episode of Success Unlimited. Well, uh, this is Tom Simmons. I want to welcome you to the Success Unlimited podcast. Uh, with us, we have a uh, Bruce Sheridan, who is a certified EOS implementer. Uh, EOS is the acronym for the Entrepreneurial Operating System. It's taken the world by storm. Mm-hmm. And uh, I want to jump right into it. Uh, there is so much to unpack and talk about today. Um, Bruce, great to have you with us. So excited. Mm-hmm. My pleasure. Thank you. Yes, sir. Well, why don't you tell us just an overview about what EOS, uh, what EOS is? Sure. EOS is the Entrepreneurial Operating System. It was started by Gino Wickman about 20 years ago. He was an entrepreneur. Him and his dad owned a company that taught real estate agents how to sell. Very successful. They sold the business after about eight years. And he just started helping entrepreneurs make their company successful. And he thought, hey, I'm good at this and I love it. So I'm just going to keep going. (laughs) So 20 (laughs) years later, we've got almost 200,000 people using EOS. Um, There are. Why is that just the U.S.? No, EOS. Yeah. Is that worldwide or just? Yeah, worldwide. Worldwide. Wow. I think think we're in 40 countries now. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's that's a lot. There, and we have an office in Detroit is our headquarters. We have an office in London and an office in Sydney. And we're going to be open one in the EMEA, uh, European, Middle East, Asia. We haven't figured out wow. where yet, but that'll happen within the year. Um, wow. When I, jo- I joined about seven years ago and there were maybe okay. 150 implementers. And now we have 750 around the globe. Um, and it's growing. We estimate there's. 300,000 companies using it. Um, and I'm probably, well, I think we're over 23,000 that have hired an implementer like myself to help them take them through the journey, like a coach, you know, a trainer. Yeah. Um, you know, you can, you can go to the gym and lift weights and you're going to get some benefit. But if you had a really good trainer, they take you to a whole nother level. So you said like a coach. So yeah. what is the difference between an implementer and a coach we are implementers we we tell people that we are teachers facilitators and coaches okay so we do all three of those what we do the model there's six components of the model and this we have a toolbox with roughly 40 tools so what we'll do is we'll teach you all those tools in an order that we have found to be the most successful and then we teach them to you. We facilitate you learning them. And then as you're practicing them and using them in your business, we're going to coach you because it's easy to be outside and look in and be a coach. Yeah. Um, it's hard to do that when you're a lot of companies choose to self-implement, 
And I'm okay. We love it. We have an abundance mindset. You, we give away everything on our website. You could, you could find everything you need. Uh, but the difference is, it's hard to facilitate the implementation and be a leader on the leadership team. It's, it's a challenge to do both. Yeah. The um, what is the EOS system based on? Well, it was built. Um, you know, Gino cobbled it together over eight years working with his dad. It's all the things that he did in his business, but it's been refined over the years. A lot, a lot of smart people have, have been involved with EOS. And even to this day, I mean, it's hard, it's hard to tweak it, but if we all agree, that's a good tweak, we will. Uh, but okay. we, we don't touch it that often, but it's built on years of success. I mean, it's a proven system. It's not theoretical. We've proven it over and over and over again. So full disclosure for the audience. Yeah. Uh, we met back in 2018. And so for past five, almost six years, I've kept the book called Traction <laughs> on my bookshelf. And about a month and a half ago, oh, three businesses. And about a month and a half ago, I finally cracked this open. And uh, and it just, it just creaked and groaned open. But... I'm halfway through the book and I wanted to bring uh, you and bring your knowledge to the audience because I think there's so much wisdom from talking with you in the, over the course of the past five years and reading the book by uh, Gino Wickman called Traction. It is absolutely hands down one of the most uh, useful books for entrepreneurs I've come across. Yeah, it's, um, it's on the top reading list for entrepreneurs in so many different places. Yeah. And so if you're listening to this, I cannot say enough. Go out, get your yourself the book called Traction. Uh, while we're on the subject of books, uh, E-Myth by Michael Gerber is another great book. I uh, really enjoyed, enjoyed that one as well. Yeah. Um, but so walk me through your personal journey of how you arrived at uh, becoming an EOS uh, implementer, coach, and teacher? Yeah. Um, I have been doing it for, well, EOS has been around about 20 years, but I've been doing this type of work for companies for over 35 years. Oh, wow. Um, so I've led thousands and thousands of business leadership teams over my career. And about seven years ago, um, I had... Well, I was at Bank of America, and I did this type of work for 11 years there. Every 18 months, going to a broken business unit and helping them <laughs> get on their feet. Um, so if I could stop you real quick. Yeah. You told me a story uh, a couple weeks ago about when you were going in to help fix Bank of America's branding and image problem that they had. Cause through mergers and acquisitions, they had bought up smaller banks. Yep, and they had a problem with their, their brand. Yes. Would you mind sharing that story real quick? I absolutely, I, that resonated with me. I absolutely loved it. Yeah. Um, so, well, in the eleven years I was there, we acquired three thousand banks. Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! So, That's just imagine three thousand wow. different logos and colors and fonts, and you know how do you, <laughs> yeah. we? What we learned about halfway through is that. We have to like immediately when you acquire a bank, you just got to be you got to take the expense and, and fix it. But even then, um, 
I, wore, I went into uh, corporate marketing for about an 18 month stint. And we had the executives put a basket wherever they sorted their mail in their home. We gave them like a basket. And we said, Any, anything you get that's branded Bank of America, please throw it in that basket and we'll collect it from you. So we did. And we went, we, bu- we built, we stationed in like a war room, a really large conference room. And we were tacking up on the wall all different. And they all said Bank of America, but the colors, right. the fonts, the logos, uh, it was a smorgasbord of colors and logos and fonts. And we just couldn't. Wow. It was horrible to look at. <laughs> so if you think of Bank of America today, the red, white, and blue, because we right. are, we, we played on Bank of America. So it's all red, white, and blue, the colors. It's got that swoop. It looks like a, a flag. It's got, you know, red and blue stripes and a flag kind of. That's the, that's the uh, logo. So we standardized, we created that logo, we created what the, whenever you said Bank of America, what it had to look like, and actually the size and the proportions, and I mean, it was like a detailed blueprint of how you can make the logo. Everything had to be in proportion exactly right. We had the guy that used to do the visa commercials, we hired him, and everywhere that there was a voice for Bank of America was his voice. So okay. if, you got, if you got put on hold with the mortgage company or on hold with the credit card company or anywhere you, you call into a branch and get on hold, it was his voice. Wow. Uh, so we really standardized our brand. It was a major, major effort. And we probably spent more than $2 billion on that effort. Wow. Yeah. That's some big numbers. Yes. But it had to be because it was a big business. We had 88 million customers. Yeah, the, uh, we were international, so that branding went all around the globe. Globally, anywhere we had an office. The uh, does the Bank of America is that in like different languages? Yes, many languages. So, so it's, it's but the colors, the font, all that pretty much. No, I don't think the name the, the name Bank of America you wouldn't put in a different language. Okay, but all you know any any material would be in all different languages. That's interesting. I find that as I'm an entrepreneur, I talk with other entrepreneurs on this show and, and, and just in, in life in general, a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with branding, but even more so than that, they also struggle just with business. Um, yeah. I, I don't, I, I, you probably know how many, what percentage of businesses fail. Yes. It's like 95, maybe 97. It's up there. It's high. Um, yeah. One, one particular, um, tidbit I like to share that only four out of a hundred small businesses started ever break a million dollars in revenue. Only 4%. Yes. Or four out of a hundred break more than a million dollars. Yes. And those who do, how many actually stay in business? After that point, it's so many things can happen. Yeah. To cause you to fail. I mean, you could, you could just drive it into the ground (laughs) <laughs> uh, maybe health issues or, per, you know, divorce or drug addiction or who knows what. Uh, oh, you could also look at COVID. COVID destroyed a lot of businesses. Um, if you were in an entertainment or like one company I knew, they they would set up the stage for shows like, you know, Taylor oh Swift. Like a, Their business probably went, went zero. zero. Yeah. Wow. So there's, there's reasons things fail. Um, 
but that's the, that's the statistic. Four out of 100 will break a million. Wow. What are some of the you, – you, you've helped thousands of companies. What are some of the more memorable companies that you've helped, and, and how have you helped them? Oh, boy. Um, I guess early on in my career, I – was an engineer out of Georgia Tech and got hired at Florida Power and Light, which is an electrical company. And I was doing just the electrical for the power company because I didn't have an electrical engineering degree, but they taught me how to build it the way they wanted it built. So I'm designing these electrical systems and supervising IBEW crews that are building them and digging holes and putting poles and underground cable, all this stuff. I'm loving it. So I get a call. We're gonna, we want to do what the Japanese are doing with this quality stuff. We want you to do it for the Miami division, which was the biggest in the company. Wow. And I'm thinking, what in the world? I, I'm like 25 years old, and you want me to lead this thing for the biggest division in the company? Um, wow. But the only saving grace I had is no, none of the leaders knew it either. So it wasn't like I was going to look like an idiot because they didn't know it either. <laughs> oh, my gosh. What, what gave it away that they didn't know what they were doing? Oh, because our, our CEO went to Japan and saw Kansai Electric. Uh -huh. had They had a, a chart up where it said they had less than 20 meter reading errors. So our CEO is getting all cocky. He's like, our target's less than five. What's all this big hubbub? And the interpreter goes, it's less than 20 per million meters read. And ours was per thousand. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So most of our branches had like 10 misread meters per thousand, which is 10,000 per million. And that Japanese company had 17 per million. Oh, my. So we had 4.4 million customers. That would have been 44,000 misread meters a month. If we was good at the Japanese, it would have been like 70. So... <sighs> Our CEO is thinking of the chaos of 44,000 misread meters versus it would have been 70. One person could have managed that. Yeah. Well, we had the whole call center and every month, 44,000 of them are coming in. And it was just, a, and if we were in the wow. customer's favor, they didn't call us. Right. Well, yeah. The well, next well, month, well, then two months later when their bill doubled, they call us screaming. What? What are you doing? Well, we misread your meter yeah. the first time. He's <laughs> like, right. disaster. So he come back and he said, I want to do what Kansai Electric is doing. So we every quarter, um, counselors would come over and I'd be in, I'd, I would be meeting with them for like 12 to 16 hours a day for 16 days straight. And they were just pounding on me how to do this in Florida Pound Light. So I would absorb as much as I could and then I'd bring it back to my leadership team for that next quarter. But, but the reality is we went from one of the worst utilities in the country to probably top three. Wow. And, and we had thousands of people wanting to come visit us. So we limited it to a thousand a month. And then still we had like 12 month backlog of people wanting to come see us. Cause we, we, we couldn't, we were trying to run a business. We can't be doing shows all day. So, Right, right. We would do one a month with a thousand cut off. And for years, actually, it turned into a $25 million consulting company. And the Public Service Commission made us break it off because we're a public utility. Like, what are you doing 
management consulting. You can't do that. So we right. had to form another subsidiary to do the consulting. And it was wow. it turned into a $25 million consulting business. All started from a 25-year-old Bruce Sheridan. No, no, it was a bunch of us. <laughs> <laughs> I did, I really did love it though. I mean, Miami was the biggest division, so a lot of the other divisions would follow the lead we were doing, but yeah. there were hundreds of us that were we were just trying to absorb it and, and put it into the company. We wow. actually got so good. The Public Service Commission is where you would complain right. about the utility company. And we had the whole East Coast and the West Coast up to Tampa of the state of Florida. We got so good. The Public Service Commission started setting up tables in the malls, the shopping malls, with big signs. If you want to complain about Florida Power Line, come over here. And we were like, what are you what are you doing? Why? Yeah. No, yeah. We got, you know, the governor was like, shut that down. <laughs> like, what are you kidding? Yeah. Because wow. they were they had people sitting around with no work to do and they wanted to keep their jobs. So they started going to the mall soliciting complaints. Like that was terrible. But it just showed how good we got. It was yeah. really and then even with the nuclear power plants. We were kind of on the watch list and they kept coming and auditing us and coming and auditing us. We got so good, they stopped auditing us and they were telling people, go look at what Florida Power Light's doing. <laughs> so it, it, awesome. that was a really, and that's where I fell in love with it. I was, that was, you know, two years out of college and I thought, I love this. You're like getting a crystal clear vision, you're solving problems at the root cause, you're including everybody and you're working as teams. You're getting the people that actually do the process to solve things that are broken in the process. Right. We went to our customers to the point we had such an elaborate methodology of getting what the customers wanted and then fixing our systems to give it to them. Um, wow. Another example was reliability. We were like the only game in town. So we didn't, you know, hey, man, a tree fell down. What do you want us to do? Right. Well, we went to Pratt & Whitney because they, you know, the reliability of the jet engines was, you know, you only have like a one in 20 million chance you'd ever have a fatality on a commercial aircraft. So they came in and taught us how to do reliability of our system. So I used to love to fly. But after these guys taught us their class, I had white knuckles because <laughs> I realized, oh, it can fail. And it's, this system can fail and that one can fail. And I'm on the plane like hold it. the only thing that was saving grace, they said, the first four minutes of a commercial flight and the last four minutes outside of that, you don't need to worry. So you huh. could ask my wife, even to this day, 30 years later, I'm setting my little watch when we're taking off. And then when it hits four minutes, I'm like, okay, we're good. <laughs> we're good. We can relax a little bit. Um, they, they say we're landing in 20 minutes. And I was like, Oh my God. So with all your experience and, and, working with thousands of businesses, it begs the question, what are some of the maybe top three or maybe the top five biggest challenges that small business face? Yeah. Um, that's a great question. I would say staying focused. Okay. Because what I notice is they, they, Oh, that oh, I like that. Oh, maybe that'll work. Maybe we can make money doing that. Maybe this, uh, and they're constantly tweaking and changing what they're doing. It's like, hey, stay focused, right? 
that's probably number one. Number two, they they won't let go. Usually they built it by themselves or with a partner or maybe a couple, two or three people. Now they've got 50 people. The company's 10x, 20x what they did when they started it. Wow. Yet they still try to hold on to everything. And run themselves into the ground, probably. Well, it's it's holding the, it's holding everybody back. And what I love is when I can take my clients to that tipping point where they'll say to me, I, I actually feel like I'm not doing anything. Like nobody's asking me questions anymore. Nobody's bothering me. I'm not getting calls and emails all day. I'm like, hey, man, you should be happy. And they're like, yeah, I really am happy, but I feel lonely. Like, no, you got a company that runs itself. That's amazing. And so maybe one, maybe one or two more things. And yeah. I, then I have a comment, but go ahead. Um, I guess another would be get the right people. Don't, a lot of times I start with them. And then what we do at EOS, we build an accountability chart. It's like, looks like an org chart, but it's not meant to be an org chart. It's meant to be what seat are you in and what are you accountable for in that seat? And then I want, everyone in the company to match your core values and be in a seat that they can do that job. And then what happens generally is it's like someone they've known for 20 years or it's their friend or their brother-in-law or their sister-in-law. And they realize this person has got to go. Um, The longer you do EOS, the harder it is to hide. And so making tough people decisions and getting the right people in the right seat is a, is a huge one. So, my, my comment, uh, going back to where they won't let go and, and you're freeing up uh, the CEO or the founder's time so they really don't know what to do and it's lonely. Yeah. I think you need to go talk to Gina Wickman and say, you guys need to form a uh, like a, an eight-figure uh, fun club where people have all this free time. Get them all together so they're not lonely and go see the sights of the world. Yeah. <laughs> or go do something else. I had one, one of my clients, he was working 70 hours a week when we started. And he, I'm, between then and now, he looks 10 years younger and he looks healthier. Like when I first met him, it's the first time I met him. But looking back, he was worn out, almost looked like he didn't look, he didn't have the right color in his skin and just worn out. He said, I'm wow. selling this thing. I'm not going to go anywhere. I'm done. I'm selling it. I said, well, then I can't help you. He goes, well, I'll give it a shot. Let's see what you can do. Well, two years later, he went from 70 to 80 hours a week to two or three hours a week. And he bought another business. I said, what are you doing? He's like, man, I was bored. But he, his, his, mom, his mom is in an assisted living in Florida. And now he goes to see her all the time. And, and what he did is he bought a shipping company in Florida. I That's think it's a right off. Pens, well, he said I had fun with it, and then he flipped it, and in two, like a year or two, he sold it for double. He's like, I, I was bored. I had fun with it. Uh, you know, I had a good time. So now he spends a lot of time with his family. Uh, awesome. He owns a lot of property. They started farming some of it. He's yeah. got grandkids. He could, he could go see his mom as much as he wants, and he told me, he goes, I'm not selling this business. I'm keeping it. So he's at a point where he doesn't even have to go in if he doesn't that, want to. That's the dream, though, right? Is yes. Your- build something and build something to last and yep. but there are so many components that are required in order for that to happen well to go back to your point 
if he held on to everything and still worked 80 hours a week, he could never walk away. And then right. if somebody came to buy it and they did their due diligence, they'd be thinking, wait a minute, if it requires you to be here 70 or eight hours a week or the wheels come off, I don't know if I want to buy it. Right. Exactly. Right? Like, because if I buy it and you walk out the door, does it collapse in 30 days? Uh, uh, you know, right. the value of the business goes up as well. Not just you got more free time, you're making more money, but the value of the business increases too. So you're, you're, the time in could go down. The revenue and profits go up. Yep. The yep. value of the company goes up. It's a win-win. Um, shifting gears a little bit, we have another you know, uh, five to 15 minutes here. Yeah, I want to touch on your non-for-profit. I've okay. followed you on LinkedIn um, for several years now, and if you are okay with this, I'd like you for you to talk about a little bit about Life Compass and what that is, and and what kind of impact that's having. Absolutely. Um, I started it when my son graduated college, and he said, "Dad, can I come back home?" I'm like, "Sure," and he's playing video games, waking up at eleven o'clock, staying up till two o'clock eating my food so like three or four months he goes he goes dad i feel really bad i'm like what he goes i'm like i'm not doing anything and i'm 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 in your house i'm like listen you could as long as i'm alive you can come live with me anytime don't worry about it he goes but you think i should get a job i said that would be a really good idea <laughs> after i just paid four years for him to go to college right so, it, this is interesting. I feel like God has, I don't, I know God has crafted the path of my life because for almost 40 years now, I've helped companies set a strategy and goals and just improve and get, become great companies. Right. And I'm sitting at the table with my son and I said, well, what do you want to do? He's like, I don't know. I said, if you had a dream job, what would make you jump out of bed? I don't know. I said, okay. I said, please don't say, I don't know again. When I ask you a question, he's like, what do you mean? I said, I know you're way smarter than that. You, right. when you say, I don't know, you've given yourself permission to shut down. I said, I want you to think about it and give me an answer. So four hours later, we built this elaborate strategic plan for his life. We had God, family, career, and budget. And we had a three-year plan, a one-year plan and what he needed to start doing and he, I, it felt like 15 minutes. He even said it. He goes, Dad, this was so amazing. It would help so many of my friends. And we spent four hours at the kitchen table, and it felt like 15 minutes to him and I. It was just because we were so into what we were doing. And I thought, holy cow, maybe that's I should amazing. maybe I should help other young adults. So that's what Life Compass is about. So is it a program that is there like a – read this book or you take this quiz or how does, how, how do you do that? What's your vehicle? Well, I've been coaching individuals. I've probably coached about 40 or 50. And then I wrote a book last year. Um, it's called a well-launched life. Okay. How young adults can live an intentional and fulfilling life. And it's well I've got a lot of my life story in there where I give them examples. Like I really messed up. My, my life was the best. So you can, you know, anybody can come out on the on the good side. Um, at 25, I accepted Christ into my heart, and my life did a 180, and it's been amazing since. That's at good. that point, I thought I was either going to die or go to jail. Um, it was horrible. Um, 
So I love it. I love helping. I, I wrote the book and now my next big project is I want to write like a six to eight week course that churches can use to reach 18 to 28 year olds. I feel like it's a very underserved group of people. Wow. What, what, would, that, what would that look like? What are your initial thoughts there? Because that really intrigues me. Uh, yeah. I'm a believer myself. Yeah. Uh, come from a, a very strong faith background, uh, faith-based parents and family, and um, that's really intriguing. Um, yeah. What any semblance or anything you would care to share and what well, that? What I've cobbled together so far is I'm going to use my book as the book for the course. Okay. Then I'll write a smaller like study guide, where as they whatever you know match, break it up into like eight equal parts have questions and homework and discussion points and blah, blah, blah. And then I also want to create a really good outline for the coaches that are teaching it. And then I want to create a certification program for the coaches. I want to have like a, a bronze, silver, gold, and platinum, you know, cause if you're, if you're with that age group, I want people to be serious about helping them. And, uh, you know, I want them to go through a background check, all that kind of stuff before they're, Right. you know, having the privilege of sitting with those people. Wow. So um, I'm excited to build that. Yeah, I would, uh, as you put stuff out on LinkedIn, I'm sure I'll see it. And of course, we, we'll, we'll stay in contact as well. Yeah. Um, given the title of this podcast, Success Unlimited, um, what are some of the tips or advice that you could give maybe to your younger self yeah. Or somebody coming up behind you that you could say, hey, this is the, the one or two things I would say in, that you need to work on, that you need to do. I I actually uh, put four steps in my book. Okay. First step is think about it. Think like, about you, it. Yeah, what do you want to do with your life? And, and it's only your decision. Don't ask other people. Right. Be, Get some quiet time and think through it. You don't have to answer it in 10 minutes. You could take 10 weeks if you want. What do you want to do? And I also say there's a question I love to pose. If we were going to talk in three years from today, looking back over those three years, what would have had to happen in your life, both personally and professionally, for you to think it was successful? So I, I, try, I, I give them as much time as they need to answer that question. So I want to start writing it down. Write it on paper. The second thing is, is to track your progress. Just because you write it down, you know, you stick it in a drawer. You need to hold yourself accountable. And that's another big uh, piece of advice. Get other people to hold you accountable. Your parents, a mentor, a friend. Uh, I ran track in college. If I didn't have a coach, it would have it been a joke. You know, he, he held me accountable every day in practice with a stopwatch. It was hard to fake that one. <laughs> Um, so awesome. write it down, hold yourself accountable and, um, check it every 90 days and adjust it. Hmm. Um, those are the things. So the, another question that somewhat touches on this and usually I can gain a lot of insight. Uh, and, and I enjoy this question, but who is the most influential person? Who, who, what, what, who made the biggest impact on your life? I would say my mother's father. 
my uh, maternal grandfather. My dad was, um, he, he was raised in a, he was the oldest of eight kids. His dad was uh, abusive, you know, physically abusive with him and his mom. Um, so my dad carried that tradition on. So I had to live with that. But my grandfather was like, oh my gosh, what a light he was. He loved me to no end and just nurtured me and put, took me under his wing. And I will never forget him. I have a picture of him on my nightstand. Wow. And he, and he died like 40 years ago or some crazy, 50 wow. years ago. Yeah. The, um, and, and then I've asked this question to a few of our guests in the past, but if you could have one person um, either in the past or in the present, you could take to dinner and just, what would you talk about? Who would that be? And what would you guys discuss? <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> okay. He was both man and God, right? So he's a person. Yeah. He's a oh person. My God. I don't, so even think, I don't think we would need to talk. I think <laughs> would, if I just sat in his presence, I'd be like, oh, my God, I'm glowing. Yeah. Well, <laughs> oh, I don't what, know. I mean, I, I guess I think when I die, I'm going to know. I yeah, think I'm, I'm going to go to heaven and see him for real. But if right. I could sit down and talk with him, I'd, just, I'd be like, um, ah. Why? Why did? Where do you why start? Did, right? Why did there have to be evil? That would be my question. Because I, I think if we all loved each other and didn't judge each other, could you imagine what kind of world that would be? Peaceful. Oh my God, it'd be amazing. It would be. So I, I wonder, you know, why did there have to be evil? And I don't know. Well, I don't even try to answer that myself. It's just too big. Yeah, there's. <laughs> When, when, when you mentioned Jesus, and uh, I, I was reflecting on my own question, I'm like, I wouldn't even know where to start. Where where would you begin on that? You know, um, but that's I almost think I'd ask him like, uh, how can I be wiser? <laughs> yeah, you know, I think Solomon. He he said to Solomon, "Ask me for anything you want." He said, "I want wisdom." Right. And he goes, "Because that's what you asked for. I'm going to give you everything." everything. But he also said there will be no one uh, in, in this generation or anyone that comes beyond you that will be as wise as you. Yes. So it was a, uh, you might have to play that one a little bit. Can I be a second most wise? Yeah, can I be second wisest guy ever? Hey, I am a wise guy. I'm a wise guy from New York. How you doing? <laughs> New York. Well, Bruce, thank you so much for your time, sir. Absolutely. It's been, uh, it's been enjoyable. I've loved speaking with you. I've learned a lot. I'm here. Um, hopefully the audience has uh, enjoyed this as well. Um, we'll have to have you back on to talk more about your not-for-profit. And when you have that up running for churches and all that, yeah. want to explore that in more detail. That would be so cool. So, Thanks, Tom. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's interview. Every week we release two new episodes. Remember to follow Success Unlimited's podcast wherever you listen. Thanks again for listening in. Yeah.